This is a wonderful truth today, and, I've, and I'm like truly excited about it, but you've got to make it to the end, okay? So, <laughs> excuse me. So go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans 2 if you have not already. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 16 today. Um, so it's a pretty big chunk, so we're going to take it in pretty broad strokes um, as Paul continues to lead us towards the driving truth of what the gospel, the doctrine of salvation is in Christ through this entire letter. Um, so Romans 2, 1 through 16. Uh, so I want to ask you this question, though, while you're turning. We've done this before in here. I've asked this very question before, but we're going to ask it again. What is a common perception that our world or culture has of Christians and Christianity? A word. Judgmental. Do we need to go any further? We're just going to stop there because that's what I was looking for. Good job. I didn't have any plants. They got there on their own. But yeah, judgmental, like, that's always one of the first two answers. But judgmental is right there. And so today we're talking about the judgment of God. And literally, so that's it. So my prayer is that today we understand it well, the judgment of God, and that we end up worshiping and praising God for it. So let me go ahead and pray for that. God, we, we love you. God, I, that, that confession we just read aloud, Lord, all the, that, that we believe, Lord, that, that, that in the eternal work of Christ, we believe in the hope, we believe in, in all the claims of Christ, Lord, that, that gives him full authority as your son, and also, Lord, that knows that he is a compassionate, um, empathetic Savior who can know our need, who faced every temptation that we do, yet without sin. And I pray that as we, as we, as we can make those confessions, Lord, that our hearts and our lives will be stirred up to humility, affection, all, all the things we talked about. And Lord, that it would manifest in a life that is for your glory, full of hope and joy in Christ, Lord, persevering in every circumstance. So Lord, we come to you now, Lord, confessing our need for you. We come to you now confessing that the topic of judgment is one that we don't like, is one that we squirm under, is one that we shy away from, is one that we're ashamed of as Christians. And so, Lord, I pray that we would wear no other identity than the identity that you've given us in Christ. And, Lord, right now we would joyfully come to your word. Lord, submit our hearts, our lives, our well-being, our, our understanding to you. So, God, we love you. We praise you. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for Jesus in his name. Amen. Amen. So let's just kick right off right here. Romans 2.1. I'm going to read this whole verse to you. Okay, you ready? It says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So we know that Paul has started a new thought because he said, therefore, he had a transitional statement. It's like, therefore, so what do we do with that? What do we always do when we see therefore? We ask, what's the therefore, therefore? I mean, we did this last week. We did it the week before. It's a fun, fun way that Paul works as he's building his case, as he's building this truth. So we ask what the therefore is therefore. So when Paul says, therefore, you have no excuse, he's referring to the whole list of sins, the 21, 22 sins that we just went through last week. We're not going to cover them again, but he's referring to our, our, the reality that we all have sin in our life. And as we talked about that last week, and as Paul was teaching in the section what we covered last week, he was focusing on the lawless Gentile, the, the, the one who was, who was driven by, by philosophy and a humanistic center of life to where they were kind of liberated from, from feeling that they needed to submit to any law because they weren't under the law now. 
also, why before? Why would they do it now? So he's focusing on this lawless Gentile, and he's talking about the effects of idolatry. And so now he's moving us to this focus on the, the law-filled self-righteousness of the Jew or the moralist. He says, you have no excuse. It's as if Paul, it's as if he knew, again, he's not sitting there face to face. He's writing this letter from a long distance and sending it to them. But it's as if he knew the responses. It's as if he knew the thoughts that would be uh, that those that are the kind of the religious elite, the religious professionals in the Jewish people would be having. And he's working to humble them. And he knows that they're going to have this response. Well, I don't do that. He's not talking to me. He's talking to them, the, the, the lawless, the ones who are outside the promise. But he's helping, he's helping his audience to, to just get off that high horse. He, he's, he's reminding them that in order to condemn, which is what he knows that many are doing and hearing this, that you must know the law. And to know the law, therefore, you know that you will be held accountable. And as we said last week, that this list we saw, while none of us are probably guilty of all of them, we are all guilty of some of them. It reminds me of what uh, George Bush, and I cannot think if I have ever quoted a politician before, but this is the first, and, and it's not a joke, so this is cool. But George Bush said this a, a week or two ago one of his, in, in his speech he gave. He said, too often we judge other groups by their worst examples while judging ourselves by our best intentions. And I thought that that perfectly summed up what Paul kind of was addressing, what he knew the posture of some of those listening would take of like, well, not me. I mean, he kind of, you know, it's that, it's that perfect mirror that only shows the good that he knows that we're looking in. You know, so, so he is working just to er- eradicate that, that thought, to, to humble those listening. This echoes the teaching of Jesus in Matthew 7, 2, and 3. It says, For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? So what is Paul, what is Paul saying that we you know, in saying that we are all under God's judgment. What's his point? Today, as we work through the rest of this passage, we'll look at the principles of God's judgment and whether or not God's judgment is fair. So first, let's look at the three principles of God's judgment. We'll find our first one in verses 2 through 5. It says this. It says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O oh man, that's everybody, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you presume, presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. So to be clear on that day of wrath, it was an understanding to know that was the day when Christ returned and all judgment was complete. So he's speaking of the final work of Christ. So the judgment of God rightly falls that we see in verse 2. He says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. That word rightly is much bigger than that word just that it says rightly. It's this word aletheia in the Greek, and it, and it simply translates to truth, but it's the force of truth. It's the claim of truth. So what Paul is saying, and this is our first principle, is that God's judgment is based on truth, and it's based on his truth that he gave in his law. 
So it's based on truth and known truth. The truth of His law. God's judgment is not on a whim. It's not by how He feels that day. It's not by whether or not He likes these people or those people. It is it is because of His truth. It does not change. God's judgment is consistent. God's judgment is a reflection of His own character. God's judgment is based on His standard, not yours or not the people around you. God knows. Paul knew and God knew. Paul was being, being led by the Holy Spirit in this proclamation of God's truth. He knew that our tendency is to define our righteousness to define our well-being, to define our rightness by comparison. So we either have an elevated view of self because we're better at it than someone else, or we have a shamed view of self because we're not as good. And again, to the church that Paul was writing to in Rome, which was full of Jew and Gentile Christians, the Jew was elevated and arrogant. The Gentile was, was burdened, had a burdened conscience because they weren't as good at being religious. So he's eradicating, he's, he's blowing both of those out of the water. Verses 3 or 4 calls us to this. Paul is addressing the high-minded religious person who finds security in some association instead of a life that assents to the authority of God, assents being that a life that proves it to be true, a life that attains to show that it is true. See, the Jews, if you remember, are God's covenant people. To, to cover a few of these covenants that the Jews held to as a, as a, as a privilege and as a position that, that made them feel like they didn't have to live out the action of the law. That they, they go all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant that we find in Genesis 12, 1 through 3. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse you and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So what we see in, in the Jewish people in the Jewish uh, church of the time was this, this place of privilege. They kind of ignored the fact that the whole world was meant to be a blessing through them. They just held to the fact that they were the blessed nation, the blessed people. And they had seen God proven himself to that covenant over and over again, that in spite of their disobedience, in spite of their lack of, of effort or their lack of devotion or their lack of obedience, they were delivered. So they were, so they were holding to this place of privilege. We see another covenant in Exodus 6-7. I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. These are beautiful covenants. They should be held on to. But the people, the, the Jewish people of the time had taken them as a privilege, as a right, and as theirs and nobody else's. It was a nationalistic claim and identity. Verse 4 is calling us to that history. If you think what we see here in verse 4, let me, let me read it again just to refresh us since we read it a little bit ago. It says, Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? He's saying, if you think that because God is a good God and has delivered you over and over again in this covenant, and that he's for his people and he's merciful and he's faithful and he's just, that you, the people of covenant, will not face judgment if you do not attain to law. You've missed the message is what Paul's saying. It is not God's goodness that would prevent him 
from condemning and showing his wrath. This is a common perspective today. It was then, it is now. As we all try to grasp what it is for God to be good and just and and to deliver his creation, we think that God cannot be good if anyone is condemned. Paul's addressing that very thing. But what he says, we'll just throw out the foundational truth here and unpack it as we go. When I say as we go, I mean over the next two years. (laughs) It is God's goodness that calls people to repentance. Think about what the people of Israel had experienced. If you know anything of their history, over and over again, they were delivered. But also over and over again, they faced judgment. They were exiled. They were made slaves. They were outside of their homeland for 70 years so that God could maintain the covenant, maintain the promise that they will inherit a land. And so he's saying that it is his kindness that leads you to it. It is repentance that brings you back into obedience. It is repentance that brings you back into right fellowship. So he's calling them back to that. Do not think that your place as a people of covenant is one that you just get to rest on under with no work of obedience. So that's principle one, right? God's judgment is based on truth. What is the second principle? Let's read verses 5 through 10. But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human, for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek, but glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. So as I've said, the Jewish people felt they were in for a day of great reward when Christ returns because of their position and nothing else. They thought that they deserved it. Paul is again setting it straight. He's saying, hey, instead of storing up riches, you're storing up wrath. Your self-righteous action is storing up wrath. Why? In verses 6 through 10, we see why. Because they were not living fully obedient lives yeah they weren't I mean that, that's that, that, you know don't I mean like just hear that because they weren't living fully obedient lives I think that's a statement we can nod our head at and say okay that's that's I get the concept but like the implications of it are terrifying so I just want to make sure that sticks before I move on they weren't living fully obedient lives and and, and just as a hint like are you living a fully obedient life. You see, the, the people of Israel, they, they, they had this, again, this religiously elite mindset. Their religious lives were motivated much more like a mercenary than a missionary. It was what they could get out of it. There was no, 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 no claim or affection for the mission or the, the end, the outcome. It was just what they could benefit from. They weren't motivated by the eternal, the glory, the honor, the immortality. That is all focusing on the attributes of God. 
the outcome of a life that is obedient glorifies God. God and that way of life is worth honoring and it brings you to the eternal hope. They adhere to what benefited them and they discarded or twisted everything else to where it still benefited them. So here's the second principle of God's judgment. The first is that it's based on His truth. It is His truth. The second, profession does not take the place of participation. It is not just words. It is not just agreement. It is actually the life manifest that will help us, that will lead us to know a place we would want to be when it comes to God's judgment. Paul is saying very clearly, now hear this, you will be judged solely by your actions. By how well you measure up to the standards set by the truth of God, the law. So here's a question. Is this still true for us as we carry forward into our age, knowing all that we know? Is it still true for us? I won't make you answer. I'm going to tell you the answer. Yes, it is still true for us. God's judgment of our righteousness is still based on our ability to live up to the holy standard of the law. I'm going to take a sip of water. Let that sink in for a minute. I don't want it to sink in. Don't let that one sink in. So God's judgment absolutely is based on our ability to attain His righteousness through our actions. Our first principle of God's judgment is that it's based on truth. The second is that we must achieve the measure of the law in order to avoid the wrath of God's judgment. So what is the third principle? Let's read 2.11. For God shows no partiality. So that's the third principle. God's judgment is impartial. We don't need to spend a lot of time on this. The simple truth is that as we were all created by God and for God, we are all accountable to his rule, to his law, and his judgment. So the, chimp, the simple truth is that as we are all created, I already said that, we're accountable. So no one, no one is exempt. So that's one of the implications of God's judgment being impartial. No one has the inside track either. No one has a different measure. This is what we see kind of the light bulb aha moment for Peter when he's in the house of Cornelius, who's a Gentile, who Peter resisted to go to as God commanded. We see this moment of, of, of Peter's eyes being opened in Acts 10, 34 through 35. It says, so Peter opened his mouth and said, truly, I understand that God shows no partiality, but in every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. So those are the principles of God's judgment, right? Based on truth, he is impartial, and we are measured by our works, measured by our ability to attain to that measure. This isn't, so as we think about that, it, it brings us to a question. How do we know that God's judgment is fair? All right, so now we're going to start coming up the hill a little bit. How do we know God's judgment is fair? This is an important question because if God's judgment is based on truth, his law, and we're, and we're held to measure for it, how do we know that it's fair if everyone has not heard the law? If everyone hasn't been exposed to it, is that fair? Let's just read the rest of our passage all at once here, 12 through 16. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law 
will be judged by the law. So he's saying those, those who, who sin without the law, they'll perish without it, so it doesn't matter. Those who have sinned under it will be judged by it. So either way, we face that judgment. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous. He's speaking to the Jews who had this practice of hearing the law all the time. It's part of their tradition. It was oral. They would hear it all the time. They didn't read it. They, they listened to others teach. They listened to others read it. So they heard it. But yet, so it's not just the hearers, the place of privilege as they had held to, but the doers of the law who, who will be justified. For when Gentiles... That's anyone who, are, who is not of the Jewish people who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires. That requires that's some by nature meaning just the way in which you were created that you know that there's a right and wrong. They are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. So it says they show that they have the law. They know the law because they actually live out the law even without having been exposed to it. They're a law to themselves. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. We're going to stop there. <clears throat> so here is our first way that we know that the law, the judgment of God is fair. God's judgment is based on the law. You're like, wait, that doesn't seem like a valid argument if you're saying, but here, hear me. The testimony of God that he gave in the law is meant to reveal himself to his people and show them how to live as his covenant set apart people. That's the purpose of the law that, that, that he's referring to in the Torah. That was the purpose of it. And so when you think about what he's saying here, so yes, he wrote it down for the people of Israel to be able to have it and to know, but he's saying that I also created all of my people. I created all of creation with it written on their hearts. It's based on the law, and I have implanted the law in their hearts. So we see that whether you've heard the law or not, you're still held accountable on the basis of whether or not you lived it out. You show that you know the law by the fact that you have a moral sense of right and wrong. You show that you understand that there is a creator. You show that you understand that there is an authority over this world that is consistent and true. So that's how first we know that it's fair. You're like, well, we're, we're have, we haven't really made any ground yet, so let's keep going. The first, so that's the first basis. The second is this. The authority of the law stand, stands on its own. You do not have to know it or believe it is true in order for it to be true, in order for, it to, for you to be accountable to it. It is a truth. It has the force of truth all on its own without anyone's acknowledgement. Truth is truth. The law is the law. God is our sovereign, holy creator. His rule is true and overall. I mean, simple example. We have speed limits on our roads. I can say the speed limit does not pertain to me, but if I drive 110 miles per hour around 610, I will experience the full consequence of my actions no matter what I say. I don't believe in your law, officer. You have no authority over me. We know how that's going to go, right? It will probably end up with my face smashed against the glass, cuffs around my hands if I am persistent, and lots of fines and possibly jail time. It doesn't matter if I say that speed limit is valid. The law of that is valid to me. The law resides over me. 
So if God is our holy, sovereign creator who gave us the law in order to reveal himself to us, in order to show us how to live for his glory, to live out the identity of his covenant people, it rules over us because it's not just for the Jew, it's for all of creation. So whether they know the law or not, those who keep it are righteous in God's judgment and those who do not keep it are condemned. So just as much as that's something to get ruffled about, it's also something to kind of be intrigued by. Like, okay, so... I don't have to know the law as long as I, I don't have to know the words of the law as long as my life just reflects the law. It's kind of, I mean, that's what Paul's claim is here. So is this fair? The next basis for God's judgment, the next way that we can see that God's judgment and law are fair is this. All are under the authority of the law because that law belongs to the Lord and so do we. God created us with the law on our hearts. Paul shows that we all have a sense of right and wrong, as I've already said. To say that their conscience accuses or excuses them is pointing out this reality. He's saying that you, again, according to your own sense of, of, of morality, to the law that's written on your heart, your conscience will let you know it will excuse you or it will accuse you. Now, without going into it, of course, and Scripture even shows that our conscience can be marred that our, our morality is flawed. But the foundational concept here that Paul is calling us to is that we all have a sense of right and wrong. It is there, and in this incorruptible place, it would be perfectly guiding for us. So he's saying the law is there, so all are under the authority because all belong to the Lord. Paul shows that we all have a sense of that. To say that they're... So Fairness means this. If this is how we can say that the law and the judgment of God is fair. Fairness means that all have equal opportunity and are measured by the same standard. So this means as we see as Paul's laying out, that God's judgment is absolutely fair. Everyone has an equal opportunity to live out a, a, a life that is pleasing to God. They know right and wrong. So they're going to be held to that judgment. So his judgment is fair. So this is why I said we absolutely need to make it to the end today. <clears throat> I imagine there's a lot of tension right now. <laughs> it's kind of like, because it, it sounds a lot like either, either universal salvation, like Jesus isn't that important, or salvation through works. One way or the other, it doesn't jive. If you've been around the teaching of, of Scripture and the Gospel, some flags should be raised up here. So what do we do with this? How, how is what Paul's saying here not an affront to salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone? Romans 2.16 gives us a hint. <clears throat> it says, On that day, when according to my Gospel... And he's talking about the gospel that he proclaims, the gospel that he teaches in Christ. God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. So first off, see the completeness of God's judgment. When he says the secrets, it is, it is, that is all-encompassing. It's not just what's visible, but it's also what's in the heart. And he says, so that's even even greater extent of judgment. Paul's whole purpose of this section is not to teach us the way in which we are redeemed or justified, but why we need redemption and justification in someone else other than us. This is not 
our way to be saved. This is our need for salvation that Paul is calling us to. As I've said every week, this is one letter meant to be read all at once. So Paul is again building a case. He's building momentum and a trajectory. He's making a point. He's preparing perspectives and intellect and reason and hearts to receive the glorious truth that is to come. So what we see when we say according to my gospel, he is working to to wake us up to the reality of the measure of which we are held. The measure to which we are held, the measure of God's law, is nothing less than the very holiness of God himself in full perfection. That is what the law calls us to. The law perfectly lived out would result in a life perfectly holy as Christ is holy. And as you may or may not know, all have fallen short of that. We'll come to that in just a couple of weeks. But he's working to wake us up to the reality of that measure. He's building momentum to what is to come. He, and he tips his hand here. And I think it's just in kindness. Like I think he, he just wants to give us a little breadcrumb to keep us going, to keep us from running out the door in fear or throwing up our hands in exasperation or walking out with some false sense of security. He gives us a breadcrumb that it's not on our own and that we're judged more than just by the outside, but also by the inside of our hearts. His hope, Paul's hope, is to wake all of us up to the reality that we are all held accountable by the actions of our lives and the ability to live out the law of God and that we will fall drastically short. But when we say according to the gospel, when we talk about the judgment of God as we're talking about here, in the stark picture of it, it says according to the gospel. What does that mean? It means that judgment is a part of the gospel of Jesus. So what is the gospel? If you haven't heard this before, the gospel is just the, literally translates good news. It is the good news of the completed work of Christ where, where all are redeemed who confess and believe, as we see later in Romans 10. So for there to be good news, what does there have to be? Bad news. Yeah, it's not good news. It's just news otherwise. Like it's just information. It's only good news when it's relief. It's only good news when it's in contrast. So the very title of the gospel says that there is something afoot. There's something negative. There's something that we need. There's something that we've fallen short. There's something drastic happening. So for there to be good news, there has to be bad news. Judgment is a part of the gospel. And if you think I'm saying that judgment is bad, I am not. Because hear this. We fear God's judgment because we only associate it with condemnation. We have to remember that it is God's righteous judgment in Christ that leads to our redemption. Judgment is a part of salvation and not just the road. It's not just the deterrent. It's not just the scared straight kind of thing where we get sent into a room with someone that's just going to scare the bejesus out of us. And I think that's Greek. I'm not sure, but... I didn't, all the best jokes aren't planned. So was that one planned or not? No, I, um, but God's judgment is part of his saving work. So if all you do is fear judgment and view it negatively, do you, do you only look at judgment as a source and a way to condemnation? 
Or have you connected with the reality that in the completed work of Christ, that in God's great love and grace, He sent His only Son into this world to take on our sin, to take on our wrath, to face every temptation we did with yet without sin, so that He could take our wrath and give us His righteousness. So if we say it is in God's righteous judgment in Christ that we find redemption, that's the beautiful call that should pull us along in this study. And so, and so that's, that's, our, that's our call today. Yes, we are measured by our works as far as what gives us our, our, brings us before the court. Our works bring us before the court. Reveals our need that we, we will definitely fall, we'll definitely fall short. But the breadcrumb today, the, the glorious truth that should feed our appetite to stay, to stay in this is that it is also God's righteous judgment in Christ that leads to our redemption. So the fun thing is, is that for the next 10 chapters, we get to unpack that in like great detail. I encourage you, read ahead. Don't wait. Read it over and over again every week and man, let the truth of the work of Christ blossom in your heart and life. If you're a skeptic, if you're a doubter, there is no better place to bring your questions, to bring your, your greatest intellect. And if you are one who has made the confession as Christ as Savior, dig in. Talking about security, as Sarah Jane said earlier, this is, our, this is where we will find our security. So let me pray for us, and we'll go into a time of communion. God, you are good. And just as much as you are good, you are our holy, sovereign creator, God. Created all of us, Lord, for your glory, in love, for your purpose. Lord, we are all yours. Therefore, we are all under your truth, called to that standard. And Lord, as we see the reality of judgment, let us not be terrified in a sense that paralyzes us or pushes away, but let our fear lead us to being humbled before you, acknowledging our need, and seeing that according to the gospel, all of our secrets are judged by the glorious work of Christ. So God, we surrender. We confess our need. We confess our hope in Christ. As we come to the table now, let us remember well the work of Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.